So if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Um, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 984, Colossians 2. And we're looking this morning at verses 16 down to the end of the chapter, verse 23, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And um, again, I know that you will find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And before we do, let's go to the Lord praying for his blessing on his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you that as we come this morning to the preaching of the word, we come to have our our minds refocused on him. We come to have our gaze directed to him. We come to see him in that resurrection glory, that glory that he now has with you at your right hand. And our Father, we come that we may draw from him everything that we need for life and godliness. We come that we may see more and more of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would remove from us every distraction, every distracting thought and wandering thought. We pray that you would enable us to to see him and to hear him and by faith to lay hold of him and to draw from him everything that we need. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us yourself. We thank you that you are all that we need. We pray that you would bless and that we would hear your voice as of the voice of the Good Shepherd this morning and that we would follow you and know you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, literally Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body or neglect of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this week, a young man in Seattle, Washington, put a video on the Internet, which within four days got 10 million views. It became probably the most talked about thing on Twitter among Christians throughout the world. Ten million views in four days is a big deal. Um, Not many um, musicians, actors, and whatnot get that many views. And this young man had made this video in which he had said, um, 
that Christianity was Jesus, not religion. Now, there were many things in the video that could be critiqued theologically. There were many things that weren't right in what he said, and, and the bloggers rushed out to blog about it and to tell us everything that was wrong with the video, but he also said many things right in the video. And the point of what this young man had done was he was trying to emphasize that Christianity is not found in do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Man-made religions, we all know this in fundamentalism where we add to the word of God and we say Christianity, real Christianity is found in abstaining from this and not doing this and doing this and not doing this. And in that sense, many people have fallen into a trap of counterfeit Christianity. It's very easy to do. In fact, it's so easy to do that within the first generation of Christianity, the Apostle Paul had to warn against it. In that first generation of Christianity, the Apostle Paul had to warn against the very thing that we see manifesting itself all across this country and all across the world with churches that are not built on the sound and full preaching of Jesus Christ, but are built on rules and regulations and restrictions and ceremonies and superstitions and any kind of mystical, um, any kind of experience-driven model of Christianity that is not grounded squarely on Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, as Paul is so good at doing, is warning the Colossians. He's been warning them from back in verse 8. Notice there where he says to them, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so Paul is is zealous. He is zealous that the churches he had planted and churches he had not seen, even like this church in Colossae, that they would not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. They would not be moved away from Jesus, that they would, as he often says, be rooted and grounded and go deeper in Jesus Christ and would not try to form some kind of rigorous Christian lifestyle unbiblically. And that's so easy to do. It's so easy to fall into that. We'll talk about today four things. First, we're going to look at Paul's warning against counterfeit Christianity. And then secondly, we're going to see his uh, setting out the forms of counterfeit Christianity. Then we're going to see the attraction of counterfeit Christianity. And finally, we're going to see the uselessness of a counterfeit Christianity. We're going to see first the warning, then the forms, the attraction, and the uselessness. Well, notice there in verse 16, Paul is is now making application of what we saw last week. He's making application of the fact that at the cross, uh, the infinite Christ accomplished everything that we needed, that our sins were nailed to the tree, that the handwriting of requirement that was against us was nailed to the tree, that Satan was disarmed, the principalities and powers were disarmed, that the power of the accuser of the brethren was taken away, that Jesus, without hands and without feet to do anything, did everything necessary for us when he hung on the cross. And Paul is saying that because of what he did, because of the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, there is nothing more that you need and that everything we need is still in him. And by virtue of our union with him, it is ours. We died with him. We were buried with him. We rose with him. That in the gospel, we are united to Jesus Christ and everything he does, he does for us. And it is perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing should be taken away from it. And the implications for it are abiding. The implications for it affect every avenue of our life. Every thought, every word, every action, every emotion ought to be affected by the gospel. And so Paul's going to say here in verse 16, therefore, because of all those things that Jesus has done, because you're forgiven, because 
Satan's head has been crushed because everything's been dealt with. Let no one pass judgment on you regarding food and drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Now, you have to understand that as Christianity was rising in the first century, there were many Jewish sects. Many of the Christians Paul's writing to had been Jews. They had converted to Christianity from Judaism, which was not Christianity. Remember, the gospel was there in the Old Testament. The perversion of the Old Testament is Judaism, and that is not the gospel. That was a religion that took many of the laws and many of the ceremonies that God had made and many of those things that God had given Israel, and they had created man-made religion out of that. They had become self-righteous. That's the Gospels, reading the Gospels. It's everything that Jesus attacks in the Gospels is those who took those things that were pointing to him and trusted in them and acted as if they, in and of themselves, could be pleasing to God and were better than others. And so our Lord Jesus railed against it. The Apostle Paul is now warning against it. And he's saying, because Christ has accomplished everything, there were certain things in the Old Covenant economy. There were certain things in the Old Testament that were pointing to Jesus that now have been fulfilled in him and that we don't go back to. So, for instance, food and drink. There were those dietary laws, clean and unclean animals. God did not give them. Let me say this emphatically. If I'm the only person that ever tells you this, other than the Apostle Paul, God did not give you clean and unclean distinctions in the Old Testament because it was healthier. Let me say that again. That is not why God did it. God very clearly says that Israel was to see in those clean and unclean distinctions that they were to be separate from the nations. That until Messiah came, they were to be separate and even in what they ate, enabled them to stay separate from Gentiles. In the Gospel, in Christ, Jew and Gentile come together in one. He has broken down the middle wall of partition that in his body he has uh, abolished the enmity. He has fulfilled everything. He has become the unclean one. At the cross, Jesus, the clean one, the holy one, became the unclean one and he destroyed clean and unclean distinctions that existed in the dietary laws of Israel. And so Paul says, now, let no one tell you you can't eat this kind of food. You can't drink these drinks that in the law perhaps certain vows required them to abstain from. And so notice that Paul then says, not just food and drink, but also those ceremonial festivals that God had appointed for Israel. So, for instance, Paul is saying, you don't have to celebrate Passover. You don't have to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You don't have to celebrate Pentecost. Those things were preparatory. They were anticipating the Messiah. Paul will very, very clearly say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ is our Passover, that he is the Passover lamb, that what the Passover from Egypt until he died on the cross signified was what he would do at Calvary. Not one of his bones were broken. He was the Passover lamb. He is the greater Moses. He brings us through a greater exodus. We rejoice in our deliverance, our Passover, the judgment of God passing over us in the death of Jesus because he is our Passover. And so now there's no need for us to go back to celebrate festivals that were anticipating that. They've served their purpose. They have come to their goal and end in him. He has realized in himself. You know, it's interesting when Jesus comes, his first sermon, and he's preaching in Nazareth in Luke 4, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the oppressed, to send victory out, he says, um, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
He's speaking about the year of Jubilee, when the captives were set free, when debts were canceled. That once in a lifetime year, every 50 years, that if you lived an average lifetime, it would happen once in your lifetime that Jesus, in his work coming, in his person and his work, he is the year of Jubilee. He is the year of the Lord. Debts are canceled. Every Captives are released through his saving work. And so, he is the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of every feast. He is... God's great fulfiller of all those ceremonies in the Old Testament. And notice that Paul, in a very very powerful way, and I want to draw your attention to this, verse 17, really seals this by saying, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These were a shadow. It's as if the Old Covenant people looking out and the sun coming down and the Son of God coming into the world, all they saw was the shadow. All they saw was the shadowy form. They couldn't see his full image and his glory. But they, they saw his shadow. It was his shadow. Those feasts and those festivals were the Son of God's shadow being cast out over the old covenant history. And the people were not to go to the shadow and remain with the shadow. They were to anticipate the one whose shadow it was. And so when he came and everything that he did, every step he took, the shadows fit away. With every step that the Son of God took, in his earthly ministry, the shadows flew away until he rose from the dead. And now we see in full array the son of righteousness. He says that those were a shadow, but the substance, the body, belongs to Christ. I think it's interesting that he, he speaks of the body, since that's the very thing Jesus did to fulfill those shadows. Was He took a body to himself. He embodied in himself everything that was necessary. Remember, Jesus himself called his body the temple. He said, destroy this temple. The, the Jews for thousands of years had worshipped at this enormous, massive worship place set high on a mountain, and Jesus comes and he says, I am the temple. God dwells fully in me. I am the dwelling place of God. I am the true temple. He realized in himself everything that the old covenant had pointed to, and so Paul's saying, and I think it's fair to say if you want to celebrate Passover, you have the freedom to do that. But Paul says, let no one judge you. These new believers were being judged by Jewish um, sects who were saying to them, you can't do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And Paul's saying, no, those things are done away. Those things are fulfilled in Jesus. And then notice in verse 18 that he is actually warning about further error. And he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, There was an error going on called Gnosticism that basically had a hierarchy of mediators by which you can make your way to God. And angels were some of those greatest mediators. And there was a sense where many people believed that these angels, because remember, angels did play a vital role in Revelation in the Old Testament. These angels were somehow mediators. And Paul's saying, don't get into angel worship. They actually were falling into angel worship by saying, if we in some way experience a mystical relationship with these mediators, we will in some way be closer to God. And Paul's saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on worship of angels, going on about visions, vainly puffed up without reason by his sensual mind, and not holding fast to the head who is Christ. Well, notice that as Paul not only warns about these things, he also defines them and explains them. I think it's interesting that if you look in Colossians 2, there are actually three things happening. Paul is warning against philosophy. 
he is warning against uh, ceremonial observations, and he is warning against a sort of mystical worship of angels. These three things, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, very helpfully puts it this way. He says, the devil, when he counterfeits the Christian faith, always does it as nearly and as exactly as is possible and conceivable to the gospel itself. It is there that we see the real subtlety of the devil, his counterfeit, the thing which he brings along in order to beguile us and to delude us on the surface looks amazingly like the real gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that takes up the whole man. It applies to the mind. It applies to the heart. It applies to the will. It's interesting that when you look at these three things, let no one deceive you with philosophy, the mind. There's something about Christianity very potent to the intellect. God had come and he had revealed the mysteries of the world. He had revealed who had created the world. He revealed who redeemed the world. Uh, The Apostle Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind. Christian preachers are to preach to the mind to get to the heart. There's something very real and intellectual about the truth of the gospel. And so a counterfeit of that would be philosophy, an empty deceit. And then the heart, worship of angels and experience, because God is concerned that with your heart you believe on the Lord Jesus, that you do not merely have intellectual truth, that the heart matters, that the inner man matters, that communion and mystical union with Jesus matter. And so a mystical experience with visions and angels and dreams was a very real counterfeiting of what they ought to have experienced in Jesus. And then the will. Because Christianity doesn't end with the mind and the heart. It works its way out into the actions. Our lives are affected by the gospel. Our actions, our, our behavior is to be conformed to the gospel. It is driven by the gospel. We are transformed by the grace of the gospel. And so a error of do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, a fundamentalism, a making of man-made rules and regulations that seem to be religious and seem to actually affect you are an error of the will. And so you can see how Paul is dealing with this counterfeit, this counterfeit Christianity, and he's explained these three things in great detail. Now, I don't want to belabor all of the things in this text, but I do want us to see that there is something very palpable. There's something very, there's something very attractive about counterfeit Christianity. Now, I know, and I say this to you guys a lot, I know we're not in danger of this exact error. I know that. I know that you're probably not in danger of being led astray to have a Passover festival in your backyard and tell all your Christian friends they need to come. But I do think we are in great danger of being led astray to Christ, to all kinds of therapeutic gospels, to all kinds of health, wealth, prosperity gospels, to all kinds of mystery gospels. People give their paychecks to false teachers on television, paycheck after paycheck after paycheck, and these men so often are not preaching Jesus Christ in his fullness. And people will give their livelihood to men that are teaching a counterfeit Christianity. And I may sit back and marvel, And I may say, how can that happen? But Paul says it's very real and it's very palatable. And I think even beyond the televangelists that are teaching false gospels, this comes home to us in very specific ways with dietary things, with do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, things that seem in some way to make us a better Christian by doing these things. Now notice that Paul, as he talks about the attraction in verse 23, And this is really where this text is moving. He says, all of these things 
have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. Now, there's something very powerful. When I look at uh, when I look at a man or a woman who are fully dedicated to a false religion, there is oftentimes something very powerful about their dedication. There's something that can often draw on you when you see the commitment that people will give to a false religion. The day in, day out, the rigor, the asceticism, the denial of desires and seemingly denying themselves of things. And, and there's something very drawing to that because most of us look at that and we say, I want something more in my life. I want growth in my life. This is why our, our TV uh, morning shows dedicate whole sections to health and science for wholeness and betterness and leave Jesus completely out. There's something about rigor. There's something about devotion that is attractive. Paul actually says these have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. If they didn't, There'd be no danger. If there was no attraction in seeing these things, there would be nothing dangerous about it. There'd be no danger of us falling into it. Um, you know, I think you see this in the rich and ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Kind of off the cuff, you know. Well, obey the law perfectly. And he says, I've done all of them. There was something about the rich young ruler that seemed that he could superabound what God had required. What more must I do? What else can I do? What other rules and regulations can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? There's something about that sort of rigor and that sort of zeal for, for doing more that leads us right here to this idea of attraction. There's something attractive. I've talked many times to people who um, will say, for instance, you can't drink alcohol as a Christian. And there oftentimes is something very attractive to that. This sort of self-denial in these certain food and drink things. Our Lord Jesus drank alcohol. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. And what was he drinking if it wasn't alcohol? He made water into wine. Now, yes, there's dangers to alcohol. There is great warnings in the Bible. But there's something often so attractive when we hear people who have gone beyond what God has said and have created rules and regulations saying, if you want fullness in the Christian life, you need all of these things in place. And so Paul says, notice that they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and False humility. I think they are the worship of angels. Oh, who am I to enter directly into the presence of God through Jesus? Setting up other mediators, setting up uh, other things that God has not set up as gateways to God. So that seems very humble. That seems on the surface that people are being very humble. It's like an agnostic. When you talk to them and say, oh, who am I? Who am I to say that I could know that there's a God? That seems very humble. Paul says that's a false humility. And then finally he says, that there's an attraction in these things because of the neglect of the body. We've already talked about that, the neglect of the body, the things that seem to show this person is godlier because of the rigor with which they practice these things, their diets, food and drink laws, all of these things bound up. The Bible very clearly says there's nothing unclean that enters the mouth. Jesus himself said it in Mark 7 that nothing that enters the mouth is unclean. And the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians says, Nothing is to be refused if it's received with prayer and thanksgiving. That God has created everything that can be eaten. Now, it doesn't mean 
There are not health benefits. It doesn't mean you don't have the freedom to eat a certain diet. But we have to be aware that we do not bring that into our Christianity. There's a very real danger. And then notice what Paul says finally. He's talked about the attraction, and now he talks about the uselessness. I think this is where we really want to camp out as we close this morning. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You may lose weight, become smarter, get a better knowledge base, become more likable because you have some mystical ambiance about you. I know people like this. I wish I was more like them in some ways. But Paul says that all those things, all those external acts that God has not commanded do nothing to the heart of man. They don't free you from your sins. They don't free us from the enslaving powers that we so often feel. They're they're the garb in which religion is found in Jesus. They are not the thing. They are not the thing. They don't do anything to the soul. They don't help us grow in grace. They don't help us die to sin's power. We did that in Jesus. We die in Jesus to the power of sin. Because at the end of the day, what God cares about, what God really cares about is whether your flesh has been crucified with Jesus, whether sin's power and dominion has been broken in our life, whether we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. And notice what Paul says, actually, that he says in verse 19, all those that were teaching these things were not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments grows with the growth that's from God. In the gospel, you get everything. In the gospel, you get all the power that you need for overcoming the indulgences of the flesh. God calls us to holiness, and in the death of Jesus, we get everything that we need for that. In Jesus Christ, we get it all, and when we don't, and when we go to a man-made, counterfeit Christianity, we get no power. We get nothing. We get liberating power in Jesus. We get enslaved to religious rituals if we fall into this kind of counterfeit Christianity. Now, let me say a few things as I close. First, God has certainly appointed for us a few ceremonies in the New Testament. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a second. That's a ceremony. It has found its fulfillment in the death of Jesus. But there are things that God has called us to observe. We are going to sit down at a feast. We are going to eat the bread and drink the wine. We are going to feed on Jesus. He has appointed baptism, which is still a ceremony, to show entrance into the New Covenant Church. He is going to tell us constantly throughout his word that the way that we grow is by uh, fervently studying the scriptures. There is such a thing as true religion. There is such a thing as Christ-centered religion, and it is centered on a, a thorough use of his word. Paul's not saying there's no rules. There's still the moral law of God that we are being conformed more and more unto obedience to. There is still the word of God that we are to study fervently. We are to pray to God. We are to be committed to weekly worship. There are lots of things that God requires of us. But everything we need for life is in Jesus. It's not even in those things, because let me say this as we close. You can actually make all the means that God has appointed. You can trust in those things the same way that these Jews were trusting in rituals. You trust in your Bible reading, how much you pray. You know, John Wesley, you guys will probably know his name from this area. John Wesley belonged to a club called the Holy Club, where he and Charles and George Whitfield, before they were converted, spent the whole night on their knees praying together, reading the Bible, talking about religion, and not one of them, not one of them, knew the power over the indulgence of the flesh through the death of Jesus. 
They spent the whole night praying. They boasted about how much they prayed, how much they read, how much that holy club meant to them. And they themselves did not have power over the indulgence of the flesh. And so as we come to use these things, and this is the great application, as we come to use these things, we come that we may know our Lord Jesus more, that we may know more of him, that we may come to him. Remember, he said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me and you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. We come to Jesus. We rest in Jesus. The whole body is nourished and knit together, being united to him, growing with the growth that comes from God. Now, in the weeks ahead, we are going to see how our union with Jesus affects every aspect of our life, gives us this power that those things don't give. But as we close, I want to say this. You may be a more or less cautious person. You may be a more or less critical person. You may be a more or less gullible person. All of us together are called to make sure that our Christianity is a Christianity that is thoroughly rooted in Jesus Christ. That it is thoroughly rooted in him. That it is what he did. It is by virtue of our union with him. It is not by our own efforts. It is not by our own willpower. It is not by our desire for a mystical experience. It is not by our desire to appear righteous to men. It is by that inner personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, everything necessary, everything necessary to the heart and the substance of Christianity dwells. And so as we go from this place this morning, we go wanting to look to him more and acknowledge him more and guard against those. The friends can be very powerful. Voices can be very powerful. The Internet's very powerful. We must guard by taking heed to the things that Paul has said here. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us warnings, and we thank you that you direct us back to your Son week by week. And we thank you that you um, describe to us the, the counterfeiting ways of the evil one. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness, that you have revealed to us the right way, the way that is um, a way of peace and rest, a way of salvation, a way of victory over sin's passion and freedom from sin's dominion in our Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would make us to see more fully what he has done for us at the cross and in his resurrection, that you would fix our eyes back on him this morning, that you would help us to run with endurance the race set before us, that we would know the victory over the indulgence of the flesh through our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.